Animal drums, discriminations of London light, interference, poetry, performance, will distortion. I can get away with anything. No, Stephen, no, you can't. That's the whole point. You're going to be held responsible. In a film, you are responsible for every frame, every breath, and that is the contract. You are responsible in every move you make in the city. Blake Mosaic's underpass, ethical geometry of S.J. Fowler's shirt selection, degraded crossrail unrolling stop, railways into sheds, cemeteries, crematoria, weed ladders, waste mountains, pill parties, trolled, thrilled, drive for two hours every day, terminal cancer, tax regulations, ghost flats, art washing, Russians, Fill the house with wild birds, empty benches, fence sepulchre, alchemy of panic, meadow row, post-chemical, intensely local, unified soul, future ruin, intelligent smoke, brand-tattooed authors, balloon sniffers, Nicholas Hawksmoor, Ratcliffe Highway killings, lack of dark spaces, church as refuge, mouth of hell, ritual embrace, laminated identity badge, approaching Disneyland, opposing Disneyland, helicopter, sick list, election register, return to werewolf, knife fight, suicide, bag of pigeon heads, attacked by a pigeon in the park, sat nav next to pub, gone, it's been done, relocated, no problem at all, beat a tell, drinking in the coach and horses, Francis Bacon, John Hurt, cocaine 80s, hard Brexit, fruit, fur, sea, skull, ossuary, bell, typewriter, gym, audience, train, stadium. Have you read Derek Raymond? Not Hackney, not Islington. Path ends in Birmingham. Frogs, rats, foxes. Mediumistic engagement. The unfinished walkways of the dead. Nothing is finished. Angel stones, deserted catacombs, flight path, grave robbers. It's not a film. You wake. Audience wake. Finnegan's wake. True. Vouchsafe me more sound picture. It gives furiously to think. Listen, listen, I'm doing it. Hear more those voices. Always I'm hearing them. Enough.
first I was a seabird. My mouth was full of oil and my small bird cunt was full of oil. I stumbled, squatted, laid a shimmering black egg. The relief team came in orange jackets and they all had handheld cameras. There was a scuffle. Everyone wanted to wash me. It reminded me of school. I was four and wore small glasses. I cut my knee and two older girls raced to the girls' bathroom to get damp towels to damp the wound. Later, another girl tripped and smacked her face against the paving. Her flimsy head crumpled like a carton. White jersey cream poured from the split. We formed a circle around her. No one ran for towels. No one called a teacher. No one wanted to wash the groaning seals. Second, I became a mother pig, locked inside a metal shed. I had a hundred piglet kids, and each was born incredible. One had a human nose instead. One was born with pendulous breasts. One entirely perfect, but a kitten, not a piglet. I said to all of them, you are gods. You'll become doctors or lawyers or family dogs. I guess I was naive. I was only five myself. I ate soya beans and seal blubber. I got sick and thin. I gave birth to a blue heart, and I loved it the same, though it went sour in the hay. I birthed up a lung, my liver, and kidneys. I thought that I would die, but they fitted me a battery. I watched as one stuck his arm deep into the cat and pulled out a link of grey sausages. A son, I said. I have a grandson. I was the body of an ant that died within the boundaries of the pet cemetery. There were rows upon rows of bright white graves, and I had been reading the inscriptions. All the dogs had died of asthma, all the cats of ear infections. I crawled into an urn and bathed in the ash of a Doberman. I could feel the strength and size of it. Later, I took a flake of stick across myself and scraped it all away. I was a gladiator. I clenched my antabs and worked out lifting cocoa bark. I came to a grave fitted with a crystal that refracted sunlight. I stood at the foot and renamed all the colours. I called that one Joy of Ants and another Ant's Salvation. When the sun reached the high point at midday, it hit me through the crystal. The thin line of heat singed me and frazzled my antennae. I took myself away to die among the lesser exhibitions, the shallow plots holding koi carp, rats and geckos. I grew under the soil. I heard it rustle in the skins of other onions, how anything above got hurt by birds. After that, I stopped wishing to be a strawberry. Still, my early roots hurt, swelling hurt. The earth was like a nightmare, very damp and crawling. I dreamed that I was growing on a tree instead. In my dream, I was hot and pungent. Sparrows cried themselves into blindness whenever they came close to me. I woke up with a tension headache. I was lifted. The earth groaned and gave me. I was placed on clean dishcloths. I watched closely. An enormous bird holding its shining beak in its wing, pecking the black eyes out of a potato. Bertie eats a bowl of raisin bran, watches the news, shits, showers, and settles into his time alone. His day looks like this, as it has since the very first day after he recovered, recovered from his drug withdrawal. He lay on the shag carpet floor of the living room. It was once a vibrant and sickening period-appropriate combination of purple and orange swirls. It's now a far more optically forgiving matted gray and pink. Beside him lay a jug of water and a glass, an ashtray, two packs of Marlboro lights, a yellow lighter, a box of pills, and a bottle of pills. There is a stereo and television in the room, but they always remain off when he's alone. 
The first thing Bernie does after laying down and lighting a cigarette is to take, propped up on one elbow, two one milligram tabs of clonazepam. Then he lays flat on his back and stares up at the ceiling, smoking and ashing his cigarette with a familiar accuracy of repeated experience that only the blind tend to know. Drowsiness sets in. Bernie fights it. After an hour or so, he props himself up on his elbow and reaches into the box for a sleeping pill, an off-the-shelf sleeping pill called Nightol, which contains the chemical diphenhydramine hydrochloride, recommended one pill an hour before sleep. He takes a glass of water and swallows one down. He lights another cigarette since he's already propped up, then lays back down on the floor. After 15 minutes, a crashing wave of sleep batters him around his face and mind, but he keeps it at bay, something that years of heroin use had given him a certain skill for. He repeats this each hour, increasing the dose with each intake. Two milligrams of clonazepam become four, one night tall becomes two. He begins to drink more water because of his intensely dry mouth. He always prepares two packs of cigarettes, but he doesn't get around to smoking many, because the drugs make smoking seem uninteresting. He's always slightly worried that one day he'll fall asleep and light a fire. Bernie's greatest fear when it comes to death is that of being burned alive. In this way, he is a reasonable man. Around one o'clock, death becomes the primary focus of Bernie's mind. How much he'd like to die. Not by burning, though. Much of his brain is unavailable to him, because it's been called to duty elsewhere, keeping him awake. His entire focus is on not falling asleep and fantasizing about his own death. A curious thing happens almost daily after the fourth cycle of pill consumption. Although Bernie and Sophia don't have a ceiling fan, a ceiling fan appears directly over Bernie's head. He can feel it cooling his face, which is a relief. The drugs make him warm and sweaty. After the fifth and penultimate cycle of clonazepam and nitol, Bernie watches as the ceiling fan disengages itself from the ceiling, then, in slow motion, descends towards his stupid, stupefied face. The ceiling fan oscillates six or so inches above him, so slowly that there isn't the typical blur we associate with ceiling fans. Bernie can make out all the mechanisms that have built the fan. He sees the blade and the rotor, as well as each individual screw. Bernie's mind stays fixed on suicide, his eyes fixed on the fan. Then a very interesting thing begins to happen. While Bernie smokes a Marlboro, the blade of the fan slices the ash of the cigarette off. Then it slices the cigarette in half. There is no sense of fear in Bernie. There is really no sense of anything in Bernie, because there is scarcely a trace of Bernie left. He watches as the tip of his nose is taken off and sent flying across the room, bouncing off the coffee table, rolling along the tile of the dining room floor until it comes to rest against the leg of the nearest dining table chair. Then as Bernie abstractly fantasizes about various ways to kill himself, in a car, driving off a cliff, or into a tree, with a gun at his temple or up inside of his mouth, leaping from a tall building or kicking away a chair on which he stands with a noose around his neck. The slowly moving fan begins to dissemble Bernie's very face and head, sending bloody chunks of himself all around the room. This is when Bernie, each and every day to his amazement, consumes the last of the pills he set aside for himself. Amazed each time because as far as he is aware at the moment, he has no face with which to consume the pills. Down with the nitols, the absurdly large dose of clonazepam. He's astonished to find a mouth in which to put a cigarette. This is a second. Are we on?
We're on the This yeah. is a section of the memoir uh, called Rambo in the Kitchen. In the Rambo in the Kitchen. That's it. Uh, it's the Bronx, uh, Pelham Parkway North, where I lived, 1952. Elizabeth Sharon, her husband, and two sons lived in a huge two-bedroom on the upper floor of a building across the small, a small court, courtyard. It was James, the younger son, who, when we were boys, without any prompting or cause, threw a stone at me, hitting, hitting close to my left eye and leaving there a small white scar, like a knife cut. Thinking it made me seem tough, I boasted to girls in school that I had been in a knife fight over a poker game, the kind I had seen in westerns and gangster films. The brothers took after neither their father nor their mother. They never read a book voluntarily, and they mocked me for doing so. What are you reading now, Four Eyes, they would say. I had a crush on Elizabeth since I was eight, before I even had my first conscious sexual feelings. And now at 16, when we became friends some months after I dropped out of high school, I dreamed of her with all my burning teenage lust. I would see her walking purposely with a book under her arm on her way, I imagined, to some glamorous place or on some unimportant, some very important mission. But then on another day, she changed pace and moved like a cat, taking its time to bowl to a bowl of milk. I masturbated thinking of her. Then I felt guilty whenever I passed her on the street, sure she knew the things I did to myself under the sheets dreaming of her. Elizabeth was universally disapproved of in our building. Where is she always going alone at night? I heard our upstairs neighbor ask. It's not my business, my mother said, answering. With such, adding, with such a handsome husband, why go, why go anywhere? She even goes to Paris without her husband and leaves the boys alone with him. What kind of woman does that, the neighbor snapped. One spring Saturday, I saw Elizabeth sitting on a bench in the Bronx Park. She was reading, turning the pages slowly, and then quite quickly, as if she, she and the book were on the whole and were the whole world, and no one in the world mattered. I wanted very much to know what the book was, so that so absorbed her, while also thinking how beautiful she was. She caught me in my stare, and she smiled and called out, "You're my son's friend, aren't you?" "Yes, I am," I said, not mentioning that we disliked each other. That he called me a fruity bookworm. "Do you like books?" Other than the ones you have, read, you have to read in school, she asked. Of course, I said, and nervously began to name a few books. I loved, books I loved. I like especially, I said, A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man and raise it The Razor's Edge. I have others you may like, she said. Come by for coffee or a glass of wine. Just ring my doorbell and I'll see if I'm, see if I'm free. A glass of wine with an older, sexy woman who read books. What in the world was more European, more grown up than that? Did she know that I was only on the way to 16 and that I drank wine only at family meals on Sunday at my Uncle Umberto's house? A week later, I crossed the courtyard into a building and rang and was let in. My heart did several quirky, quirky skips before I reached the fifth floor landing, where she was waiting for me at the open door. She kissed me on both cheeks. She smelled of lilacs. She was barefoot in jeans, I thought. I would see her nipples pressed against her T-shirt. The living room was three times the size of mine, and bright sunlight filled the clean windows. Unlike my place, all the furniture was intact. No chair or table with a broken leg, bound with electrical tape. No lamps with torn shades. Paintings of rooftops with orchards of TV antennas were hung in the places in spaces between the floor-to-ceiling bookcases. They're very beautiful, those paintings. They're so realistic, I said. It's my husband's work, she said. Why doesn't he just take photographs? 
she added, leading me into the kitchen. She had made a pot of espresso in an old-fashioned way, and while we were waiting for her to brew, I looked, I looked too long at her nipples. She caught me and smiled. I turned away to study the empty coffee cup. Coffee cup. Do you like girls, she said. I love girls. That's too bad. My brother, the opera lover, would love you. I'm sure I'd like to meet him since he's your brother, I said, pleased with what I thought was a sophisticated answer. Have you ever read Rambo? Elizabeth asked. You burn like him. She disappeared for a moment and returned with Rambo's A Season in Hell. For you, she said. It was a slender New Directions edition that, with five or six other books, I took with me wherever I moved later in life. She read to me, she read to me a passage in French. It sounded very beautiful. It's great, I said. So you speak French, she asked. I plan to learn it because I'm going to live in Paris and be a painter. An artist. Wonderful. You'll love it there, Fred. You'll never want to come back. My mother says you've been to Paris. Yes, she said, but never for too long. She said what she said with a make-believe sigh. The doorbell rang, and her sons crashed into the kitchen, sending me their dirty looks. They were in muddy baseball uniforms, and the younger had a streak of blood down his nose. They had just returned from a game. The other team had tried to cheat, so they got into a fight. Guess who won, James said. They grinned and swung their bats and poked them toward me. Stop it, Elizabeth said, and in a deep voice that scared them, and, and, and in a deep voice that scared them, and even me. They withdrew without a word. She grew silent, brooding. Then she brightened up. Visit me again. Come when we really can talk, and let me see the painting. Let me see your paintings one day. That would be the day, I thought. Imagining myself toting my paintings of chairs, of a cot, of black, of black streets into her apartment and having her glance at them and without a word showing me to the door. But I did visit her again, and often, pacing myself so as not to seem too avid for her attention, her beauty, her sophistication. One day she lent me the novel I had been reading, I had seen her reading on the park bench, Duna, Johns's, Duna, John, Duna, Barnes's, Duna Barnes's Nightwood. Let me know what you think, she said. I had wanted to like it because she did, but I couldn't follow the story. I didn't even understand if there was a story, but there were passages of intense, shadowy beauty that made me wonder what new world I was in. I also tried to make sense of Joy Joyce's Ulysses, another book she gave me, holding it out like a treasure. This is the one, Freddy. This is the alpha and omega of literature. This is all the novels rolled into one. The book left me baffled, although I knew there was something extraordinary going on in Joyce's ocean of words. I felt special, I felt it, and I felt special just trying to fathom those words, fathom those words. What was wrong with me that I failed to have a clue to what was, to what, what anything in it meant or was supposed to mean? How's it going with Joyce, she asked from time to time. Just great, I said with faint enthusiasm. She was the guiding mother I had wished for. She was also the woman of pure sensuality over whom I was pretending I was spending loads of sperm under my sheets at night and in the afternoons as well. I like to think that she saw in me the son she had wanted instead of the two louts living under her cultured roof. But whatever the reason, I knew she liked me and liked my wanting to be an artist and to live in Paris. But one is never alone in Paris, she said, when I first asked her if I would be lonely there, not knowing a soul. An artist like you will make friends in a week, and I have some people there for you to meet, but brush up on your French. I was ashamed to tell her that I had not yet made an attempt to learn the language. Somehow, 
I believed that by some magic I would start speaking French once I arrived in Paris. We sat in our kitchen, her favorite place, and over coffee talked about novels and poetry. I liked Whitman and his singing in ordinary language, his love for the human body and its beauty. I treasured his embrace of the vast expanse of life and his finding miracles in it everywhere. He spoke to my heart, I told Elizabeth. Oh, he's easy to like, Elizabeth said, like Ravel when you're young, but Whitman won't last when you grow older. Then I'll never grow older, I said. I knew that I would, and that she would too. Would she one day outgrow her need for me? And then, where would I be? And this is the footnote. Each of these chapters have some uh, footnote or another to bring the, present, the time of the actual moment uh, to a more contemporary moment, uh, years later, for example. So this is called, this footnote to this memoir passage is called Paris and Nightwood Years After. Perhaps it was Elizabeth who drew me to any woman I, was, I saw reading and to be curious to know what she was reading, snobbishly gauging her beauty to her taste. Once, 15 years later, when I, was finally, when I finally made it to Paris, I saw an elegant woman in a cafe fixed on a book. She was at the same cafe table she was at the same cafe table with a book over the following five days. Our eyes met finally, and she smiled. I took the courage from that smile to approach her and to ask in my most polite way, in my crippled French, what she was reading. Nightwood, she said, showing me the cover. And you? I held back my surprise by wanting to tell her how I had been introduced to the book when I was a young boy in the Bronx, a, book, a boy with a crush on a woman who resembled her. But answering instead, I'm reading The Third Policeman by an Irish writer. I'm sure it's not translated. I've read it in English, she said, adding, I wondered what you were reading all these days and wondered if you were just a simpleton. She did not appear the next day or the days after, which I ascribed to my intruding on her privacy. I had become friendly with Marcel, the head waiter, who said, she comes here every spring and early fall for seven days and sits with a book, speaks to no one, and waits for no one. She's not French, and she's not English or American. She leaves extravagant tips above the service complete, so we don't know how long, so we don't care how long she sits there, or even, even when we're busy. She drinks Kier Royale. Anyway, she's beautiful. I imagined her world, and years later, I wrote a novel, The Green Hour, inspired by her and also influenced by the memory of Elizabeth. He could close his eyes, but not his ears. First, the downstairs neighbor, a mechanic. Then, the sudden barking of a dog next door. He was reminded of the busy street a block east of their bedroom window. Things far away seemed just below. Cars in the distance wound up, then vacuumed by. He got up and turned on the fan for its hum and returned to the bed. The room grew cold. He got back up and turned off the fan and turned on the space heater. 
He strained to hear its purr. The room turned hot, stuffy. A motorcycle tore the sky. He tossed away his side of the sheets. The window rattled. He stared across the room at the window. He studied his sleeping girlfriend's face for an answer. In the living room, he emptied the bookcase and removed all the shelves. He dragged the bookcase into the bedroom and slid it right in front of the window. He stepped back for a moment, the wish of a car. He returned with the shelves, then the books. He wanted them to change something, to absorb some of the noise. But the bookcase didn't cover the window completely. He could still hear the cars through the sides, still exposed. So he found a comforter in the hall closet and stuffed it behind the bookshelf to cover one side. He snatched a large yellow pillow from the living room couch for the other. In bed again, he closed his eyes. His girlfriend began to snore. He elbowed her. The snoring stopped. She turned towards him, still asleep. Her sticky leg touched his, and he retreated until he was at the edge. Moving to this noisy apartment had been her idea. She had wanted to be closer to the ocean. Suddenly, she laughed. He looked at her. She laughed again, still sleeping. He put his pillow above her head, and she woke up confused. He didn't have an explanation. He went to the bathroom and found earplugs under the sink. He didn't like things in his ears. He rolled them up and stuck them in. They expanded uncomfortably, but they blocked out the sound. He had finally found a solution. But back in the bedroom, the blood in his head became noisy. His heart was between his ears, pumping. He turned this way and that on his stomach, then his back. As he sunk into bed, it got louder and louder. He sat up and ripped out the earplugs. He threw them onto the dark carpet surrounding. He got up out of bed and searched the medicine cabinet, his toolbox, the drawers in the kitchen. All he had to do was kill the noise.
sand and intestines accumulate in the waste bucket and building a private beach cut his grid. What if this were my beach? In brackets, sandy refuse collecting in a bucket. What if this were my storm, my fort in the Solent? I drop a cocktail umbrella into the bucket. It's like a beach parasol, only it lies on its side. Freak weather events are fairly common on the Isle of Wight. Incidentally, the sea is yellow. In brackets, yellow for volatile. I'm not going in this, I say. The polar bears survey the coastline for a while. The Reeboks get halfway to the fort before they aboard. Let's regroup tomorrow, she says. The polar bears are novelists, in brackets, infantry soldiers. The Reeboks are poets, in brackets, intelligence operatives. Given how busy Shay and I are toiling, that's a beautiful thing. When they're not pursuing aspirations, in brackets, writing, the novelists and poets like to gnaw on raw squid. I deposit a saucerful under the kitchen sink. No one will notice. Good morning. It's House Mother Normal patrolling her kitchen. I employ my foot to push, push the saucer of squid further under the kitchen sink where the polar bears and the green box are hiding with bated breath. Triangles, that's it, House Mother Norma says. Nice and even. Then the arms for his tentacles here. Pieces like hula skirts. Ha ha, put one round your finger like this. Crikey, a lot of waste in your bucket. Can you make soup? Don't bother rinsing, just boil a lot. The sand will sink to the bottom of its own accord. About your contract, House Mother Norma says. Yes, I'm all ears. We'll keep it under the tax threshold, shall we? No national insurance contributions, no sick pay, no holiday. Okay, I say, in brackets, not okay. The original, B.S. Johnson's house mother normal is in charge of a fictional nursing home. She has sidelines at the goal like watching down vodka or altering the labeling of penicillin bottles for underhand profit. She exploits and abuses those in her care. I want you to pour about a quarter of these bottles into one of the empty ones here until it's three quarters full, she says to an elderly resident at one point. Three bottles pour a quarter out of, that is, until this one's also three quarters full. And when you've got them all three quarters full, then top them up with water from your tap. The recreational activities she provides are, if anything, worse. There's the pass the pass again, in brackets, roll the dice when a six comes up, put on a hat and on glass wig as you can, and hack away at the parcel until you either attain the gift of chocolate inside or someone else throws a six, whatever comes first. Turns out there's no chocolate inside this parcel, only dog shit. Violent character is B.S. Johnson's house mother normal. But B.S. Johnson violates house mother normal in turn, putting her through a public masturbation, I mean bestiality scene, with dog Ralphie, not once, not twice, but nine times over the course of the novel. Ghastly, really, but funny. Funny's important, it was a different time. In brackets, some BS therapy is Johnson. Funnily enough, this is now. This isn't a nursing home in 70s London. This is a no-star hotel in present-day Ride. Like B.S. Johnson's, our husband normal is a bully and exploiter. But if she has the originals, entrepreneurial flair and resourcefulness, then so do we. We have talents, we'll use them. And who knows who's got what sexual kinks? No one knows, least of all me. I'm only you.
Tommy says, it's Bob Dylan, the master of ceremonies, is how the swan introduced him. Sure, how did you get your name? Tommy says to him. John the gun's face is all covered in sweat, and the sweat is glistening on his dark skin, and the bright white of his eyes, and he says to Tommy, my weapon, that's all he says. And Tommy has just stood there like that, as the music kicks in, and John the gun starts with these sounds. What the crack on an old Como record coming out of the past. He has an old tape recorder that he's playing rebel songs on and making them repeat in strange rhythms. And next to him there's an old guy in a bonnet playing the accordion. And the first man up is an old Irishman with a circular scar around his head, all covered in rashes and wearing an old brown suit. He takes the mic and starts to sing. There are 30 or 40 men in the room, all stood right in front of the stage. The Irish diaspora, they call them. Boys is down in their luck as any of us, with their battered hats and their stained suits and their echoing, lamenting music. And now he's singing the place names, and it is like seeing Bethlehem written letters on a road sign in the Holy Land. It is such a strange sensation. Ballymena, come in, he sings, just like they did in the cells, into the toilet bowls, to tell the boys where they'd come from to sing where they had been removed from and where they returned to still in dreams. There are tears and there are cries and there are soft lamentations. From Anaskeen till Kildare come in and the places are echoing forever. Till Derry come in, from Eskra to Finglas come in. We dreamt of the places and sang of their names in our own time, overlapping with each other. Till Galway come in, till Waterford, till Athlone, till Dublin. Drogada and Cavan come in, Dwaniskillan come in, Carrick Fergus, to Coleraine and Letter Kenny come in. There's a cloud of voices, and then they're lagging as a song in London, as it was in the H box, as it will be in heaven, on the arrival of the boys, and the place of names, which is the place of endless echoes. The calamity is what they call it, not the troubles. Calamity come down, they says, as John the Gun starts to dance on the spot. Clacking his shoes like a tappity dance, waving his arms up into the air. And the men in the front of their arms round each other. And the Irishman with the scar is singing of place names of Ireland. And Ireland is in Bible time. And the sound that has risen in all of us. And here comes the sound. For nice and for nice and for nice opens eyes. For nice and for nice and forevers. And I catch a look at Tommy. And he smiles over at me. And I can see that his eyes are damp. And I slide my arm around his shoulders at the sad sound of others, out of time, but beautiful with each other. And now every day is joined in, a sound like soft thunder. And the tape is playing the words back as an echoes, as a lingo that has fallen, as words that have upped and fucking died in Bible time, forever. So no need of books, or storyfications, or words for that, or for no memories. Neither.
Nothing can protect you from loneliness, not even your friends, who have the best intentions in the world, not even the ones who love you so much and are so near you. Even if they breathe and exist in the same house or apartment complex as you, nothing protects you from being an outcast, lost in the sea of bobbing human heads, piles of dirt, finely combed grass, blaring bright headlights. You are at an intersection caught between despair and destruction of self. You don't know how to even begin reconstructing yourself from the glass of isolation. You have been so alone for so long. Even your body sobs in between metro stops and you turn around in your loneliness, which has become a devastation, like a natural disaster. But an individual natural disasters, without a natural, and everyone's eyes are inside themselves, inside a moving tube of the tunnel, gazing into the stoic, dumb ceiling of their empty imagination, and not paying any attention or heed to you. And why should they pay any heed? You are a nobody. You have been a nobody for so long, even longer than your aging Canadian whiskey. You've been so frustrated with yourself, not knowing how to convert your dehumanization, your deconstruction of self, your accumulation into a body capable of love, of embracing love, of receiving love. In the past, you value friendship above everything else. Your friends have meant so much to you, more valuable than gold. You applauded yourself for being a great friend, the scatterings your lovers on the side of the road for your friendships. You think your lover or your partner is important, but not that important. You proceed towards life like a flower that needs fertilizer, but not soil. But your friends, in their freshly beauty, need no gold to protect their agency of being. You can open the refrigerators, and the refrigerators are not empty. And because you value friendships above everything else, your refrigerator is always empty. Maybe there is a glass of milk, half sought by your lips. They are who they are. Candles blown in the wind, expiring with a slight breeze. The monsters inside you have been torched by snow. But who will protect you when you are sitting in a beautiful apartment with your beautiful newly purchased sofa and your ice cream maker in your dance studio? You are surrounded by opulence and beauty and cleanliness and you are sad all over. Even your body can't forgive you for being this alone. It begs for tenderness and the unbearable caress of diet breaths. Your friends can't protect you when you are this clean and you are a nobody in your own apartment. Your friendship is valuable, so valuable that you are alone and partnerless. You have nobody now. You come home to nobody. 
Where are your friends now when you have infinity sitting by you like a second skin? Who will protect you when your primary friendship, which is your lover and partner, does not exist? Where will you go? Who do you breathe next to? You may find yourself burning in hell for the virtue of being there for a friend. The tasteless, brutal sacrifice you made because it felt honorable but became hellish later. Your friends with the blissful partners do not understand or know this burning in hell. Why should they? They did not make the choice to abandon their partners. They made the choice to abandon you. You did not know any better because you had been known as the honorable one. The one who would not choose her lovers over her friends. But you are alone now, ashamed and lost and sobbing uncontrollably. Your tears won't cease falling like a waterfall. The tears fall over the sofa and crawl into the carpet, and there they will die by not being able to die the pluvial particles into the carpet. The tapestry remains unchanged because tears, like fog, leave no trace of their permanency and no trace of your existence. You are merely a verb not recorded. When you are a noun, nobody cared. How often do we choose informality over permanency because it looked more compelling in the moment? Why do we dance with darkness and sadness when we could dance with light? We take for granted how easily time changes her radio station, and we take for granted how beautiful it is and how necessary it is to have a human comforter, a human tablecloth, a human psyche, dance to the tune of another human psyche, a human chair, a human toilet seat, a human mirror, a human pillowcase, a human chopstick, a human sweater, a human body heater, a human bathrobe, a human scarf, a human sofa, a human shirt, a human book, a human gaze, a human breathing machine.
My wife wakes up screaming, scaring the animals who care for her. What is everywhere but never visible? And what is the difference between that which is inevitable but hidden and that which mode it is to try and ignore? Juddering sick people, a sickening populace, blossoming. The balance of the thing under your skin you will never see. You can take it on faith it's there, or come to see 5,000 examples of proof. Under your finger as you point to the whiteboard, beneath your hand as you scoop cereal into your mouth, under your scalp as you headbutt like a goat raised in the public house, beneath, but visible, over your chest and middle back, a hog bone pressing through a bone. The predator tears out a spine like it were a hot dog, as I do to my sardines. Honestly, it's fine, love. It's all you can do to avoid, to convince yourself you're avoiding it. But it's going one way anyway, anxious or brave, comforted or awkward, white or with small patches of hair, flesh and skin remaining. It is all the same in the end. A human pyramid post-mortem. A geometrical presentation that is both aesthetically striking and in this day of limited living space and skyrocketing real estate costs, an eminently practical solution. For it is right the dead should take up less space than when they were living and be divorced in pieces amongst each other. You are witnessing the afterlife, the meadow of ready, real, boring lambs. The heaven where everyone is tired, like on earth. The village where we will all end up, where once more you may trust your neighbor. Thank you. 